If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, March the 13th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow. Our guest today here in Hoover's D.C. office, just a short distance from the Treasury Department in the White House, is Alice C. Hill, a woman who is literally synonymous with disaster, and we'll explain why. Alice Hill is a Hoover Research Fellow based here in Washington, her area of study being destabilizing catastrophic events, including the impacts of climate change. Prior to joining Hoover, Alice served as a special assistant to President Obama and senior director for resilience policy for the National Security Council. While at the White House, she led the development of national policy regarding national security and climate change, incorporation of climate resilience considerations in international development, federal efforts in the Arctic, building national capabilities for long-term drought resilience, and establishment of national risk management standards for three of the most damaging natural hazards. Alice, I grew up in the age of earth, wind, and fire, but what are the three most damaging natural hazards? Uh, Earthquake, fire, and flood. Those all sound pretty bad. Just to clarify, as I'm reading, by the way, it says your area of study is destabilizing catastrophic events. Let us clear up that grammar. That does not mean that you're in the business of destabilizing catastrophic events. You're in the business of studying destabilized catastrophic events. That would be correct. How did you get into this? Truly happenstance. I was previously a judge on the Los Angeles Superior Court and before that a federal prosecutor focusing on white-collar crime. I was asked to join the Obama administration, and one of my very first assignments was working on climate adaptation. Mm -hmm. So with climate, you're talking wildfires and floods. Uh, Those are two very obvious impacts from climate change. And then as I looked at those and our philosophy on disasters is to prepare for all hazards, Another very big hazard is earthquakes, which are not, uh, at least at this time, associated with climate change. This is interesting because oftentimes you go into a White House and you have a very clearly and very kind of narrowly defined job. I'm a speechwriter. What I'm going to do? I'm going to write speeches. I'm a press secretary. I'm going to deal with the press. But your job, this is something different and something new, and you had kind of a rather open realm. So was this just going to the White House every day and thinking, oh, I didn't think about this, I didn't think about that? How did you just? How did you define your portfolio? Resilience is a very broad term. I was given that title uh, very shortly after I arrived. And uh, the team that I had assembled uh, that worked with me, we looked across uh, what are the most damaging things that could happen to the United States. That includes biological threats, including uh, aerosolized anthrax attack, a pandemic. Um, It also includes... Uh, terrorist bombs, uh, chemical attacks, and then there are the natural hazards. So we looked across the portfolio. We worked on all of those things, Mm -hmm. but we uh, also wanted to make sure that we were focusing on how do we better prepare for natural hazards that we can anticipate will get worse over time, and that would be flood and wildfire. 
Interesting. So you uh, have spent time in California. Reminded of a funny story about Pat Brown, who is a, a legendary governor of California. He is Jerry Brown's father. They share the same name, Edmund Gerald Brown. And uh, Pat Brown was at one point. He so Pat Brown lost to Ronald Reagan in 1966, uh, running for a third term, and a lot of things contributed to that. Um, there was unrest at Berkeley. There were the uh, the riots in Watts, and then he had some bad luck. One of them being a big fire up in um, up in uh, Tahoe, up in the Sierras. I remember it. And the story goes that he shows up to the event and he says this great malaprope, which is, this is the worst disaster since I was reelected. <laughs> well. <laughs> Speaking of California, let me throw something out at you. You're probably not old enough to remember these, but once there was a gentleman named Irwin Allen. He was a legendary Hollywood producer, and he came up with a series of movies in the 1970s, Alice, which were disaster flicks. And these were in surround sound and things like that. One was Earthquake. You go into a theater. I actually and the, saw it. Right. And the theater would shake as you watch Earthquake. I think he did Tower of Inferno. You were in a story the other day, which looked like an Irwin Allen production. Not what you said or what you did, but the story. And the story had to do with the Trillion Dollar Storm. Sounds like a bad game show, the Trillion Dollar Storm. But the idea was that a storm could befall the United States, the world economy, that could cause a trillion dollars in damage. I did some homework looking up, quote-unquote, expensive hurricanes, Alice. I found Katrina, which has caused, I think, $160 billion in estimated damage. Harvey in 2017, Katrina was 2005. Harvey in 2017, $125 billion. Maria in 2017, uh, $90 billion. Uh, Sandy, uh, do we still go by Superstorm at Sandy or... Superstorm. It was not a hurricane when it hit the uh, East Coast. Okay, so Superstorm Sandy, 2012, uh, $70.2 billion. I did a, I did an interview with Chris Christie a few weeks ago. That's still a tough topic for him to get into. Um, how do we get Alice from $160 billion to a trillion dollars? That's a, that's a six-time leap. You're referring to a uh, story that was run in Vice. Yes. Uh, that's the reporter's calculation. Uh, I have not done a similar calculation. Right. I can th- tell you that... Uh, I and I don't know the accuracy of a one trillion dollar uh, estimate, but I can tell you I think we are underestimating uh, the risk going forward in terms of damages from big storms. The, the price tag is going up. The price tag is going up. There are a variety of reasons for that, including uh, density. Uh, mm-hmm. We are more affluent, so when these things hit, there are more assets destroyed, and also climate change. Uh, there are some scientists who say that we need to go to a Category 6 storm that will see higher wind speeds than we've ever heard, uh, experienced before. One of the things that increases the likelihood of damage is that our building codes generally do not keep up with this changing risk that we're seeing both with wildfire and flood, mm-hmm. as well as higher winds. Um, in Florida, they do happen to have uh, Across most of the state, a pretty strong wind code, but uh, in other areas that are not accustomed to uh, big storms, we may see more damage to the built environment, buildings, because they simply have not um, taken the steps like securing the roof uh, more tightly that you would see in other areas that have experienced strong winds already. Okay, let's back up a second and play weather for dummies and a dummy like me who will watch a hurricane sitting on the West Coast on the Weather Channel. Cat 5 is, what, 140 miles and above? Uh, I think it's 150, but I haven't checked. Yes, yeah. Uh, but you mentioned Cat 6. I thought 5 was infinity and beyond, but there's actually a 6? Uh, it just isn't capturing the fact that we would have um, – we should be preparing mm-hmm. our building stock 
for higher winds than 150 or okay. the 140. I didn't double check, but uh, we should be thinking about that as we make choices about where we settle and how we build there. Okay, my sister is building a home in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. That is across the Arthur Avenue Bridge from Charleston, South Carolina. We're going to talk more about Charleston in a minute. What should she be building her house to resist? You're saying a Cat 6, so she's probably got Cat 4 or Cat 5 right now for insurance purposes. Just throw a number out there. What wind would you put, 150, 160? I, I don't uh, I'm not a meteorologist. I can't tell you. I can tell you what the scientists tell us, right. that the wind speeds are picking up uh, and that the storms are intensifying. We mm-hmm. know that we get more extreme precipitation. She should certainly be prepared for that. We've already seen that in North Carolina mm-hmm. with a number of these stores, storms, Florence, just dumping lots of rain. Harvey, right. something like 9 trillion gallons of rain falling on a very flat area. So she should be ready for extreme precipitation. She should be ready ready for extreme heat. One thing that we are seeing is that uh, heat temperatures spike and we're seeing more extreme events uh, occurring, which can obviously uh, affect uh, physical health, not only just of uh, humans, but our pets, uh, other animals. Uh, She should also um, be looking at what storm surge could be. So the um, flooding in her area and a very simple uh, way that many communities initially are address, addressing this increased risk is to elevate homes. So simply right. to build it above what we call the base flood elevation so that the home is higher. Right. So I read a uh, report not long ago, Alice, about what will happen to Charleston in the next 50 years as this trend continues. And it is, you want to cry when you read this because here is, if you're going to be in Charleston in 50 years, here's what you're looking at. You're looking at rising water, and you're looking at a series during the year, a series of spectacular flooding in your city. So you're going to have to deal with water problems, number one. Second, you alluded to it, you're going to deal with extreme heat. I was in uh, South Carolina last June visiting uh, my grandnephew, and it was like being in Dante's circle of hell for five or six days because every day was about 100 degrees. He's a two-year-old kid. He's impervious to heat. He has no idea what it is to be hot, I think. Ignorance is blessed. I was dying. And uh, the forecast for 50 years from now is just extended hot days like this. On top of that, when you mix uh, added heat and added moisture, you're now looking at something called mosquitoes. And mosquitoes make life very complicated for little kids getting bitten, for women carrying children who worry about Zika. This is not going to be a very pleasant place to live 50 years from now. And the tragedy is this. If you live in a place like South Carolina, it's an outdoorsman's paradise between the ocean and swimming and hunting and fishing and all that. 50 years from now, though, life there is going to be very complicated. Well, it's unfortunately not just Charleston that's going to have a very complicated existence. I will say that uh, Charleston is taking steps to better prepare itself. When I was in the Obama administration, we visited Charleston Mm -hmm. and specifically ran um, a scenario-based planning event to look at what the threats are uh, to Charleston in uh, various time periods, including uh, in the next several decades. So uh, the nature of our outdoor existence will change um, in Pretty much virtually every area of the United States, nothing will be untouched. You have alluded to a very important 
consideration with climate change, and that's health impacts. Mm -hmm. It's extreme heat, which with coupled with humidity, make it very difficult for people to be outside for long periods of times. We see much higher death rates as a result of extreme heat events, right. um, and as well as the vector-borne diseases. So it's tick-borne diseases, Lyme disease, also mosquito-borne diseases will increase. And unfortunately, we are not uh, particularly well prepared. We do not have vaccinations yet for many of these diseases, nor do we have um, training in our schools of public health or medicine or nursing systematically about the growing risks that may occur in a community as a result of clean climate change impacts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the political consideration of this. We're talking about problems 50 years down the road. We're talking about things that my little grandnephews will be encountering when they're my age. But we're dealing with a Congress, Alice, that lives in two and four and six-year cycles and presidencies that live in four and eight-year cycles. How do you start implementing change when these conversations are about apocalyptic things long after these people are out of office? Now, there's politicians thinking, what can you do for me now, and what can I do to get votes in the here and now, versus what's going to be really good for this country long after I'm gone? Well, with climate change, there is uh, a phrase, the tragedy of the horizon. That was Mark <laughs> Carney, uh, right. the central banker for England. Mm -hmm. And um, definitely these impacts will get worse over time, but it's not as if these impacts aren't already occurring. Right. We already know uh, from the attribution science, that is, that we can determine that particular events are worsened by warming temperatures. Uh, and so we can identify events, including recent hurricane events, as well as wildfires, that have been worsened by climate change. Our third national climate assessment in 2014 said, essentially, that climate change, once thought of as a distant pro uh, problem for the, for the future is uh, here today, now. So we are seeing this, and Congress is dealing with this. Mm -hmm. They're doing what many call climate bailouts. That's when they give communities money to recover from disastrous wildfires, as we've seen in California, uh, two years running, as well as hurricanes. Mm -hmm. um, and we are seeing unprecedented levels of billion-dollar events, NOAA, has been tracking, our science agency has been tracking this since 1980. Used to be we averaged six a year, now we're up to 15 a year. So with that, Congress has to be worried about how we're going to raise the money uh, to recover. It should also be worried about how do we help people prepare in advance of the event. We know that for every dollar we spend to prepare, we save $6 in recovery. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely a problem that Congress should be tackling simply from a fiscal perspective as well as a public welfare perspective. And in fact, that's what the Government Accountability Office, our watchdog, has told Congress, that this is a high risk to the uh, U.S. Treasury, the costs of climate change impacts, and it's advocated that Congress needs to do a better job in considering how we prepare as a nation. This is the Area 45 podcast, and so we're supposed to talk about things relevant to the 45th president. So, Alice, I want you to answer this question. What is the U.S. Global Change Research Program? Who is a gentleman named William Happer, and why should listeners to this podcast have an interest in this man and this program? 
Well, the U.S. Uh, and I preface it by saying you wrote about this for CNN recently. Yes, um, the Global Change Research Program was mandated by Congress in 1990. It was uh, designed uh, to require federal agencies, 13 of them, that have responsibilities for the safety of the United States as well as science uh, development here, to examine the risks uh, from the climate uh, to the nation and to help the nation better understand what is occurring in the climate and what are some of the um, uh, observations on the ground. They are responsible for putting out periodic assessments, and they put out an assessment in uh, 2014, the third national climate assessment. The Trump administration released the fourth national climate assessment on the Friday after Thanksgiving, uh, and that assessment uh, took the analysis further than it's ever been taken, and it was quite frank about the very serious risks confronting the United States mm -hmm. from warming temperatures. The report that was issued took two years to prepare. There were 300 federal experts and others involved in the preparation. It was basically a consensus document. Everyone who participated in the development of that um, warning that was contained in that fourth national climate assessment had to agree to that. If you think about consensus in your own life, uh, typically consensus draws us to a more conservative representation of mm -hmm. uh, what's going to happen. So you have to have everyone to agree. So the, some tremendous important work was done uh, by the federal government uh, at the behest of Congress. President Trump uh, announced almost immediately that he did not believe the results of this consensus-based document produced uh, by climate scientists over a two-year period with involvement from many, many others. And uh, now uh, an individual on the National Security Council staff, uh, Dr. Uh, Happer, has uh, said, uh, he's a physicist, has said uh, and promoted the idea of a panel to examine climate science. He believes and has stated and is uh, associated with an organization that has concluded that carbon is good for our environment and that we should have essentially more carbon. That finding is contrary to um, certainly the findings of the scientists for the Fourth National Climate Assessment mm -hmm. and for uh, basically every peer-reviewed uh, scientific article in recent memory. He uh, uh, President Trump uh, has indicated he's assembling a panel to re-examine the science that has been uh, determined across not only the United States, but really across the globe. Uh, we had an agreement with the IPCC reports, the International Panel of Climate Change, 190 nations reached consensus on that, also concluding that carbon was contributing to higher temperatures, which carry very dire impacts to uh, the planet, including to human civilization. So Mr. Happer is basically looking to generate talking points for a president who's skeptical of climate science. Is that what he's doing? I'm not 100% sure what he's doing, but uh, the reports in the press right. are that he is um, assembling a panel. Uh, it's not clear uh, exactly who will serve on the panel. 
to re-examine the issues of uh, whether, um, as I understand it, uh, whether climate change is occurring and whether human-caused uh, carbon emissions are contributing to that change. Mm -hmm. Those questions have been answered uh, many times over. As I said, I was a former judge, and I recall many times in the courtroom that when a party or a lawyer wanted to ask an, the same question over and over again in the expectation that they would get a different answer, you frequently would hear the objection asked and answered. That certainly comes to mind in this context. We should be moving on to other questions that will need answering in order to keep us safe. This question is asked and answered. Uh, it's the question of how do we prepare that is the burning question of the moment. So there was an interesting op-ed in the New York Times recently by uh, General John Allen. I don't know if you saw it or not, but he said the problem here is the panel shouldn't go be going in the opposite direction. It should be examining why climate change is speeding up. Absolutely. Uh, these impacts are accelerating, and I believe in his uh, article he also talked about the national security risks, which are dire um, and very serious. So that was why it was particularly honor ironic that the National Security Council was going to question this science when uh, President Trump's intelligence uh, officers have already, during his tenure, uh, reconfirmed that climate change is a national risk uh, national security risk to the nation, uh, and that the risk of compounding events as well as water shortages, food shortages, uh, and other destabilizing impacts could have serious consequences for the United States in addition to the impacts to our bases from flooding, wildfires, uh, and sea level rise. Let's uh, play alternate universe for a moment. Sure. And there is no such thing as presidential term limits. Barack Obama runs for a third term and he's reelected. You're sitting at the National Security Council. You have no windows in your office. And people are playing with your calendar. They're not showing you the calendar is flipped to 2017, 2018, and beyond. So you're still at your job at the NSC working on climate. What do you think you would be doing right now in a different administration? I would be focusing on how do we help state and local um, authorities, leaders, prepare for the impacts of climate change, as well as uh, other catastrophic risks that may befall their communities. Our approach in disaster resilience is an all-hazard approach. Mm -hmm. So that means that if we're ready for one hazard, uh, uh, odds are we're ready for another. There is a twist with climate change. Climate change uh, is accelerating. We're having impacts that we've never seen before. For example, higher winds than we've ever seen. So right. that's why we need a Category 6. More rain falling at once, a rain bomb. Uh, we're having uh, these extreme sp uh, spikes in heat that we've never experienced. So helping communities understand those risks and the choices they can make now to better prepare. Um, and we had embarked on that those efforts, including getting building standards in place that would make sure our infrastructure as well as our building stock is resilient so that we can lessen the damage that will occur. Speaking of building standards, would you be paying attention to Puerto Rico? I noticed Bernie Sanders was talking about Puerto Rico the other day. And, you know, the problem of society is a tragedy befalls. We focus on it and we move on to the next tragedy. And Bernie's reminding people that Puerto Rico is still in a bad place. So what is the lesson from Puerto Rico? 
Well, Puerto Rico, unfortunately, uh, we have recent research that reveals that FEMA's response uh, was not as we might have hoped, that our response uh, in places like Texas and Florida uh, was more robust than occurred in FEMA, uh, in Puerto Rico. So that's of concern. We need to understand why that was. There was obviously some distance involved, and it's an island. Uh, but researchers have suggested that uh, we need to do better. FEMA has also acknowledged that uh, it didn't go as well as they hoped. But with Puerto Rico, we had um, some other challenges. We had a uh, severely economically challenged um, island. We also had an electric grid that turned out to be uh, not nearly as resilient as we would hope it would be. So we have uh, learned a number of things from that, and certainly the hope is that FEMA would use that to make sure that um, they don't have a repeat, um, and also that they can benefit from what was learned there to ensure other responses are more robust. Alice, there was a poll put out um, at the end of 2018, and it was a put out by um, Columbia University's Climate Change Center and George Mason's Climate Change Center. And uh, it came up with a really fascinating set of numbers. It showed, first of all, that there is a consensus in the country that climate change is a problem. I think the number is about 60%, 57%, 60% Americans said it was a problem. So there is national consensus in that regard. But then you ask people of political persuasions how they view climate change, and here things get complicated. 71% of Democrats think that climate change is an urgent problem, needs to be addressed. That's up about 22 points in the last 20 years. 47% of independents think that this is an urgent problem. That, too, is up about 22 points. Republicans, 15% of Republicans think it's an urgent problem. That number has not moved in the past 20 years. And I suspect it won't move because you have a Republican president right now who is not into this issue, and Republican media outlets, for the most part, tend to be skeptical about, about the science as well. We do have, however, a Democratic debate season coming up, and there is one Democrat in particular who is running on the issue of climate change. It is Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington. I am a, uh, punish, a glutton for punishment. I sign up for campaigns, emails. I sometimes end up on text. I get texts by Bernie Sanders constantly. I don't know how this happened, but Bernie is always after me for money. I got texts by Donald Trump earlier today, so I need to, need to check my habits. But Jay Inslee emails me almost every day, Alice, talking about the urgency of climate change. I just bought a friend of mine a T-shirt from Jay Inslee. So for the first time we have in a, in a presidential sweepstakes somebody who is running on one issue, and that issue is climate change. You have a very sophisticated palette when it comes to this topic. You're going to be listening to 12 or more Democrats talking about climate change at some point in these debates. Tell me a few things of what you're listening for. Well, let me just say I'm listening for the term climate change. If you recall our last series of debates, mm -hmm. there was only the nationally televised debates. Mm -hmm. There was only one question about climate change. And that was by the guy in the red sweater. So uh, audience questions. One question right. during any of the debates right. that mentioned climate change and that was an audience member in a red sweater who asked the question. Right. So in the last uh, election, it was not on the agenda. It mm -hmm. might have been in some printed document, but it was never surfaced. Right. So I will be listening, first of all, for anyone mentioning climate change. Uh, the second thing is, uh, what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, the idea that we can continue to kick this down the can down the road uh, is something we should listen for carefully. Because the longer we kick this can down the road, the more serious the impacts will be, the more damage to our public health, our economy, and our security. So we need to figure out what actions we're going to take now. One of the things that's underappreciated about climate change is it's pretty much irreversible, absent some very fancy and what looks like highly dangerous geoengineering that would mm -hmm. may be difficult to sustain over the long haul. So we're looking at permanent changes in our temperature. We're looking at loss of biodiversity. We're looking at some consequences that already here, but as you've mentioned, will accelerate over time. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening for climate change. I don't think that Governor Inslee will be the only candidate on the Democratic side that embraces climate change. Amy Klobuchar uh, yesterday was in Florida. She was uh, talking about climate change to Floridians who obviously right. are confronting sea level rise as well as greater hurricane risk, at least more intense storms from going forward. Um, I think uh, Governor Hickenlooper, uh, who has also uh, indicated he's interested in uh, running uh, from Colorado, Colorado has faced droughts, wildfires, and floods from extreme precipitation. Basically, they've got a very complex mm -hmm. uh, environment happening there. So I think he will be focused on the issue as well. And I think you'll hear much more discussion of it. Part of that is our younger voters. Our younger voters have had, uh, many of them, education on climate change. In contrast to uh, many older uh, Americans, they never had any education, uh, even if they you know, are college educated, have a higher degree, odds are they never took a class in climate change. What? And that's slowing, I think, our ability to focus on the issue because those are the folks that are in power. Let's talk about one candidate who should be talking about this or has all the opportunity to because her state is a showcase for these problems, and that's Kamala Harris, the senator from California. You probably won the Crystal Ball Award for this podcast, but the last time you were on, you and I had a rather grim conversation about a thing called WUI, which for non-nerds out there stands for a Wilderness Urban Interface. And this is the California problem about nature meeting man. Californians uh, with a growing population looking for more affordable housing at all times and going further out in the hinterland. And the problem is we're putting houses out in burn zones and places where tragedy befalls. And we were talking about this a while ago. The problem continues with building new housing, putting it in fire areas, and so forth. Kamala Harris, who wants to appeal to young people, who also wants to be seen as the sequel to a Barack Obama, she comes from a state that has a lot of climate change problems. Let's talk for a second about California and post our last sad post-war conversation, just you mentioned the housing situation, for example. Let's talk briefly about if California's really learned anything from the last wildfire season, or is California just the case of somebody who's going to be knocked over the head a bunch of times before it understands what's going on? Well, California, with its wildfires, will be a petri dish uh, for right. what can we do about uh, mitigating right. this risk. Right. And, and to clarify, Alice, sorry to cut you off, but to clarify, what we were talking about was in Los Angeles, the uh, supervisors voted to approve the construction of, what, 19,000 new houses? 
Yes, uh, shortly after the wildfires, uh, the and this development had been in uh, the works for quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, in an area identified as extreme or very extreme risk of wildfire, mm-hmm. and that's before you consider the increased risk from climate change impacts that can um, change how likely a wildfire will occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, approved the housing development, and that's because, of course, uh, there's tremendous pressure for uh, more affordable housing in California. And so sometimes uh, I'm sure there are political choices that are made to uh, alleviate one problem, but it's also uh, creating risk uh, in terms of the households that will be in areas that are at known risk. You can mitigate some of those risks in how you build. uh, And we've certainly learned from wildfires in Colorado that you need egress and ingress from both places so people can get out um, from uh, Paradise, uh, California. We need to have exercised and have better early warning systems. You can reduce the risk, but uh, odds are things will burn. Uh, And uh, in light of that, there are real land use choices that need to be considered. There are a few examples where uh, communities have made the decision not to uh, approve as much development in areas that are at wildfire risk. Um, I call those no more moments. A community gets hit and they say, we're not going to do that again. We're going to protect ourselves. You're seeing that in Houston with flooding. They had resisted uh, flooding building codes. Now they are uh, have just implemented within the city of Houston a building code to uh, reduce risk from flooding. And in Australia, they had a terrible wildfire, um, a Black Sunday, they called it. Uh, many wildfires um, uh, in a certain area in Victoria of uh, Australia, mm-hmm. and they put in very strict restrictions on how much new development could occur. So we're going to have to learn from each other about how we can politically do this. But if an area has burned repeatedly, it's time for us to say we should think through whether we want to put people and assets in harm's way again. Right. There are some parts of California that cannot avoid this. Uh, A good example, if you come out to California next time, Alice, I'll take you to the town of Guerneville, which is along the Russian River up in Sonoma and wine country. Guerneville is at a point in the Russian River that floods. And when you get torrential rains, as California's had the past month or so, the Russian River snakes, it turns, it twists, and then it kind of takes a straight trajectory and it comes bearing down on Guerneville. And they're going to get it flooded. It's because where they are. And the only way to solve that is to either put them on very high stilts or move them out. So it's just every time there's rain in Northern California, you can go straight to Guerneville for the, for the report on the floods. Los Angeles spilled on shaky ground. So they're going to have earthquakes. So we can retrofit, but it's going to be part of what's living in Los Angeles. But the question for California is really one of avoidance and avoiding problems ahead of time. And this is why I asked about the housing construction and, and how California gets out of this, this cycle, it seems, because... You know, I, you look at California right now and you see a lot of problems resulting. You're going to build those 19,000 new houses, for example. How much money are you going to pay insurance for those houses, knowing that you're in a wildlife area, a wildfire area? What about Northern California? What What are you going to pay for electricity with the PG&E declaring bankruptcy because of the fires up there? So it ties in this big, ugly livability issue for that state. Well, you've raised a number of really complex issues. Uh, you have 30 seconds to respond. Well, uh, first there's uh, retrofits. Uh, right. I would say that uh, particularly the city of Los Angeles has made 
tremendous progress in terms of earthquakes. Uh, right. They have passed a requirement that they retrofit. Mm-hmm. We don't have a similar requirement for wood shake roofs. Right. Uh, and a wood shake roof, is, uh, as one firefighter has said, is like piling a bunch of kindling on top of your house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to ignite in a fire. So we have a lot of issues of uh, homes that are already built uh, that are at great fire risk. Um, and then insurance. Uh, we see a big difference in types of insurance. Flood insurance is mostly a federal problem now. We mm-hmm. are bankrupt on the issue. Fire insurance, it's mostly privately uh, provided. And what you may see is insurers deciding they don't want to insure anymore because it's just too risky. So what does Cal- will California then have to create? State insurance programs? But what, what do they do? So uh, California has had a number of bills proposed Mm -hmm. uh, to change how fire insurance is offered and to preclude insurance companies from pulling out of the market, which is what they did in 1992 with Hurricane Andrew in Florida. They wanted to leave the market. Florida worked with them and came up with better building codes, and many insurers uh, remain there. You do have a fair plan in California, which uh, is essentially insurers are required to provide insurance Uh, to the difficult-to-insure properties. But uh, the number of homes that are in that fair plan now is increasing, which is a sign that it's becoming too risky to provide Mm -hmm. private insurance. If the state decides to provide more state uh, subsidized insurance, they may end up where the federal flood, uh, excuse me, the federal program is, bankrupt, because we cannot, we are not charging fair actuarially sound rates. That means the rates that reflect the risk for flood because people say it's too expensive, so they go bare. It's a very complex issue. Uh, You've raised it. Uh, It's going to require a lot of deep thinking, but we need to find solutions. It's not good enough for us to say uh, we're just going to wait and see what happens. I feel trapped, Alice. My default position would be to get out of California as fast as possible and go back to the family in South Carolina, but we've established that's, that's problematic too. Well, Canada's looking pretty good, I guess. I don't know. Alaska, uh, there'll be places. uh, One of the things, there will be places that will have a short-term benefit from climate change. There's no question. Uh, But for the globe, it will come at a high cost, and particularly for certain areas of the globe, the heat will become very extreme. So you're suggesting that just as people get out of... uh you know, places for weather reasons or tax reasons or lifestyle reasons, they will also leave states because of climate reasons. Uh, Well, we're already seeing climate migration occur. That's displacement within communities, uh, a displacement within uh, boundaries or borders um, and crossing international borders. Mm -hmm. Um, The Syrian uh, refugees, 5 million, we saw how difficult that was for our European partners. That had as one of its uh, precipitating factors uh, a dr- very serious drought, a, the worst drought in at least 1,200 years, which caused a great number of particularly young men to move because they couldn't uh, make a living anymore. And that has uh, resulted in um, some destabilizing uh, civil strife uh, and then, of course, many other contributing factors. And But we saw migration occur. Similarly, in um, the rest of the world, uh, there's predictions of millions of people being on the move because of climate change. A quick question, Alice, and I want to move on to our final topic, and that's Florida. Uh, Florida is relevant for a lot of reasons, population, propensity for disasters, and it's also hugely important politically. Um, 
in terms of migration, what's going to happen to Florida if, was, if, as you're suggesting, that weather considerations, climate considerations are going to keep people away? Part of the Florida equation is people retiring to Florida. Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, and, of course, Florida is doing a great deal to um, address, particularly Miami, address mm-hmm. uh, their increased flooding. Florida faces some challenges the rest of the um, Atlantic coast doesn't face in that it's got limestone. It rests on limestone. So even if they decided to build a seawall, the water would probably seep, the salt water would probably seep seep up mm-hmm. under uh, through that limestone. They're already seeing um, increased salinization of their fresh water supplies. We will see and uh, uh, communities moving literally to higher points, and there's been recent academic research showing that um, it used to be to be in the coastal right there next to the ocean was the most desirable, and that's still true in many communities. But now uh, prices are increasing for higher properties simply because they're uh, safer. Over time, uh, the land mass in uh, Florida, as it is in Louisiana, will shrink. So the question is, where do those people go? If we are planning, we would think about communities and helping the receiving communities for those people that are displaced, help them absorb uh, the Floridians in a manner that is thoughtful Mm -hmm. and supportive so that there's less disruption to the communities that have to receive uh, as well as the departing individuals. What you want to avoid is a big storm and then everybody's moving at once and that can cause challenges for the cities that have to take in families in very desperate situation you said if we were planning who is we is we city state federal or all the above this is all of government Mm -hmm. uh needs to be planning it it needs to be planning with private sector because the private sector is going to have its own employees with who are homeless and its facilities that are underwater so all of us need to be planning together and thinking through what we will do as these impacts continue to threaten who drives that train in my opinion i think that the federal government uh can lead with science Uh, we have fabulous information available we can provide tools but then we need to work with the local communities and those local communities need to make the decisions that are right for them but we need the federal government needs to be in a support role providing money resources and um, science to help them make the proper choices I also think that the private sector can play a leadership role here in Mm -hmm. terms of thinking through what does their supply chain look like? Where are their employees going to go? How do we make sure that whatever choices we make are resilient and make sense so that people can get to work and do what we need to do to keep us all uh, economically healthy and physically healthy? Okay, final topic. I used to live in this town, Alice, and I used to have a pretty good feel for it. And so now when I come back, I have to kind of figure out what's going on. And what I've learned here in early 2019 is this. It's not a conversation unless somehow you talk about AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which leads us to the Green New Deal. You've read the Green New Deal. You've commented on the Green New Deal. And I think you used the analogy of it's like reading a menu in a restaurant. Is that what you went with? Yes. Explain. Pretty much the Green New Deal has everything in it, mm-hmm. um, and it uh, states a very broad social agenda. Um, and I think that 
um, that detracts from the message that I hoped that we could convey, and this is a, a nonpartisan message as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Our climate is changing, and we need to plan for it. We need to make decisions about what we're going to do. The uh, Green New Deal um, stretches across so many things. It just reads as if whatever idea was uh, thrown out was included, and Mm -hmm. it will be difficult to make uh, decisions going forward if that's the approach because we're going to have to make some choices as to what we should prioritize and where we should focus initially. I think the challenge there too, Alice, is that she is in many respects the Democrat equivalent of Trump in terms of just her name, her presence, what she says. It sets people off in both directions. People embrace her. People dislike her very strongly. So she may not be the right messenger if you want to if you want to put climate change into overall. Uh, environmental reform and economic reform, societal reform, maybe it has to be someone a little less polarizing than AOC. Well, I think you're going to see many people, as we've mentioned, uh, start talking about climate change because Mm -hmm. the polling is telling us that 70% of Americans uh, think this is a serious problem. Uh, At some point, uh, politicians uh, from both parties are going to decide they need to address this. She happens to be a very visible um, presence, uh, and uh, I think the goal of drawing attention for the need for action is a worthy one, but um, the particular uh, document is problematic. One thing it does talk about, and I think that all Americans should be able to get around, uh, their heads around, is resilience, and that's preparing for these impacts uh, because uh, they are occurring, and there are things we can do now that will keep us safer. So you worked for President Obama. I assume that you tend to vote Democratic, so explain this to me. Democrats do not oppose hamburgers, correct? Just for the record, there's, <laughs> no, Democrats there's no war on hamburgers. Not, uh, exactly. That's kind of emblematic of what the right. Green New Deal, that became the right. buzzword, and, and it's a distraction, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to focus on how we're going to um, address climate change, both the mitigation of our greenhouse gas emissions plus building resilience to the impacts that are already here with us and will come in the coming decades. Okay. Alice Hill, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. What a pleasure to be with you today. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Alice Hill and her Hoover colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Alice Hill is on Twitter, and her Twitter handle is, I hope I got this right, at Alice underscore C underscore Hill. That's Alice underscore capital C underscore Hill. Anything else you'd like to put? Oh, you have a book coming out soon, correct? Yes, I do. I have a co-authored book uh, to be published by Oxford University Press in October 2009. The title is Building a Resilient Tomorrow, Preparing for the Coming Climate Disruption. So I hope you'll take a look at it when it comes out. Thank you. you. Hope you do the podcast when it comes out. (laughs) Absolutely. Be delighted to. Great. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, 
Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.